Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Danger, danger. You are listening to um, Thursday We Have Ways special, our second. I mean, we, to be honest, we could do a month of these, a month of Thursdays. Uh, we're talking to Professor Daniel Todman, um, author of uh, Britain at War. Britain's War. Britain's War. Britain's, Britain's War. Sorry, sorry. Sorry, James. Britain's yeah. War. Britain's War. 1937 to 1947. Is it going to be, is there eventually going to be a great big fat single volume? Uh, Lord of the Rings style? No, I think, I think volume, <laughs> volume two tests the limits of what a, uh, a book can do. No, uh, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. What yeah. tests the limits of what a book can do is um, any by my friend Peter Caddick Adams. <laughs> so there, there, but there comes a point where they say we're going to have to print this on thinner paper and use a special small font, uh, microfiche. And it comes, yeah, it comes. I think it comes with magnifying they, glass. Yeah, if they put them together, I, I mean, a cased, a cased edition. 
Oh, okay. Would be nice. Yeah, you yeah. like sleep. the idea of that. Yeah. You'd like to see sleep. that yeah. in your study, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, last week, last Thursday, um, I we uh, uh, in passing, I I brought up the the British manipulating the tungsten price in Spain, which is the thing in the second volume that really that really caught like kind of caught my eye because it was in amidst all the other kind of warfare that Britain was practicing, but economic warfare. What? Just take us through that, Dan, because it's it's fascinating because people don't know about this. So Britain's Britain's strategy in the war is always based around two uh, principles, really. One is that it can wield economic power um, and that you can use economic power to make things very difficult for your opponent. Um, and that ultimately uh, breaking down your opponent's economy might be a way to win the war. Uh, and the other is that morale and economy are interlinked. So, uh, I mean, the obvious route to that is uh, uh, workers' morale means that they might not uh, uh, produce as much, or if they're not being fed enough in particular, yeah. that their morale will go down. So these are both lessons that the British had uh, drawn out of what they thought had happened in the First World War, where um, you know, there's a strong presumption that the blockade uh, had a decisive effect on Germany. It's what leads to German breakdown yeah. uh, in 1918. So uh, start the Second World War, Britain puts into place plans to do the same thing. Uh, operating the blockade gets much harder after um, uh, May 1940 because um, suddenly Germany is dominant in Europe in a way that it hadn't been before. Uh, yes, it's got coastlines. It's got, it's got coastlines. Uh, Britain itself might be subject to a form of blockade via submarines and uh, aircraft. Uh, and yet Britain will continue to try to cut off Germany's access to the international resources uh, that it needs to fight the war. Um, and you can see that in various different ways. But uh, one that you see operating um, uh, from 1940 onwards is um, trying to manipulate the price of tungsten. Uh, so, you know, key rare metal required particularly for um, uh, anti core of anti-tank shells, things like yeah. that. Um, which a large amount of which is produced in Spain and in Portugal. Um and the way that the British do that is just basically to try and buy up the whole of uh, 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 Iberian production. Um, uh, and what's interesting about that is that preemptive purchase, yeah. uh, which is a tactic they use elsewhere, you know, has the economic effect that you might predict, which is not, in fact, to buy up the whole of uh, no. uh, the supply that there is, but to dramatically increase the supply because uh, there's a very strong incentive uh, for those governments to mine more tungsten yeah. uh, because they're getting such a colossal price for it. So the Germans, but the Germans end up paying more for the tungsten, don't they? Because the going yep. rate for tungsten goes up. Yep. So, so there's still, so it is damaging the German economy one way or another. Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite hard to damage the uh, the Nazi war economy yeah. because uh, in the end, um, it's all bogus anyway. It's all bogus anyway, though. They're just willing to uh, print some more money if they have to, yeah. or steal some more from somebody else to pay for yeah. it. But it, Greece, it's, for it's example, that, yeah. yeah, it's the, it's that um, process of making things harder that I think is interesting. Yeah, and also why you've got to think about Britain still being quite a strong country even in 1940, when it looks like it's in a weak position, because it's able to uh, exercise this long-term effect um, on the German war economy. Yeah. Right? So even if, I think, you get uh, uh, you don't see the United States actually come into the war, so if there's no uh, Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and there's never an incident in the Atlantic that forces the US into the conflict, I still think you see uh, uh, the British Empire and the Soviet Union after June 41 eventually defeat. Uh, one way so, or another, yeah, yeah, strength, pro but probably with the Red Army in Paris. So, 
uh, or, or uh, an internal coup in Germany to yeah. give up quicker. Yeah, which is what yes. the British presumed would happen. Oh, 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 yes, I've... right, because right from the start, the British are thinking at some point this is going, this is going to fall in on yep. itself. The Nazi government will fall in at some point, and that and that that that's a that's a, a, the, the the ongoing attitude throughout the war. And uh, uh, you know, there's always there's always attempts to kick the I mean kick the door down and, and make the thing fall in on itself. That that's the attitude and and you tighten you basically tighten the pressure on the German economy and therefore government and population, blah blah blah. And you do that with area bombing, you do that with with uh like you say, blockade, you do that by propping up Germany's um, enemies as well, because it's the other thing, is it's mm. getting stuff to the Soviets and all that. Well, that's all part of the same picture, isn't it? Well, and it's a very reasonable presumption. Yeah. You look back to uh, uh, the autumn of 1918, uh, what happens? It becomes obvious that the war's unwinnable for Germany and it leads to a crisis in German command and a crisis on the German home front. Yeah. Um, so if you're, if you know, I, one of the things I think is interesting uh, about that second conflict, um, and one of the reasons that I think uh, historians of Britain's war need to think more about the chronology of the global conflict is the fact that the, the Second World War doesn't end in in September 1943 when it ought to. Yes, well, if you look, if you look back <laughs> at it to, reasonably, yeah. yeah if you but look, you're not dealing with rational actors in Germany yeah. at all, are you? Really? You put well, the face a, when I said that. Uh, <laughs> I think that. I think there's there's a there's a strong degree of rationality, but the rationality is driven by an ideology which is about destruction. Yes. So if the people at the top right. believe that yeah, if, you're, if you're gonna, if you're going to win the war, if you're going to lose the war, rather, that uh, you deserve to go down in flames. I mean, but uh, that's very much a Hitlerian view, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah. it's a kind of, it's the thousand-year Reich or it's Armageddon, and there's no, there's absolutely no grey area at all. Yes, but just to go back, rock, to, but just go back, back to kind of um, resources and stockpiling and stuff. I mean, one, one of the characters that I know you've, you've written about and who I've, I've became very interested in was Oliver Littleton, who then becomes Lord Chandos. And, and he's an extraordinary guy because he's, he's got a very good First World War record. I think he's got an MC um, and mentioned in dispatches several times. He's been very brave. He's very well connected. And he's obviously one of those guys who's an incredibly smooth operator. He's a, he's a well-connected, clever um, businessman. And he's got all sorts of steel um, enterprises, including... Um, he's CEO of of a German company that's been merged into. This is, if I remember rightly, of, mm. of some British company, and he sees the writing on the wall in the late 1930s and starts doing deals in Australia and the Far East and all sorts of stuff to buy up all sorts of supplies and making sure. And so he says, "Okay, I'm going to guarantee you a British government price for this this material." Um, for the next three years, as long as you only sell it to us and no one else, and I'll pay above the odds to make sure that you get it. So this is an extension of the tungsten thing. What's interesting about Littleton is you call him a businessman, but he's not really a businessman uh, of the sort that made up a lot of uh, the Conservative Party in the 1930s right. who were uh, managers, people who had um, big factories and things like right. that. He's a he's a financier. I mean, the, those right. more traditional Tories call him a city shark. Right, right, because right, right. He's the guy who you know who can see the the price uh, right. uh, of resources, who can you know co opt the, um, the the loan from somewhere else to get the money to, who can put the whole package together. So I think he's that you know he's absolutely a smooth operator and somebody who gets things done, which is the reason Churchill so brings a, him in. He's an imperial global capitalist. Yep, exactly that. Course- but he's exactly what you need, and and, and it's interesting because he wrote a, he wrote a memoir, which is very interesting. There's some fabulous insights on Churchill in 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 the course of this book. But that prompted me to then kind of dig a little bit deeper, and his papers are up at Churchill College. Um, so you can look at that. And then, of course, his, his, his 
footprint because he later becomes minister of supply is is on um is on just zillions of things and, and you realize that actually he's one of the really key players to britain's war effort um from the start of the war to the very end and yet he's someone who is just totally forgotten now i mean no one's ever heard of him it's absolutely extraordinary. Well, but that's that's what that's that's what that whole swathe of people I think would have wanted. Oh, sure. Littleton, uh Sir John Anderson. Yes. Uh, these are these major figures who uh, uh, allow the war effort to function. Who are very uh, behind the uh, scenes, high functioning technocrats. Yeah. Um, people who are brought into government but aren't really. I mean, those are uh, both Anderson and Littleton are conservatives, but they're they're quite pragmatic conservatives. Uh, and and. Um, would they want? Would they have wanted to be remembered? I mean, lots of this stuff is deliberately meant to happen behind closed doors. Sure, but it's just fascinating, though, isn't it? But they, but they are still key players, and as much a, a, as a kind of leading air marshal or a leading general is, they're they're they're, they're, they're the part they play in steering the Allies and Britain specifically towards a kind of eventual victory is every bit as important. And yet, we because we have this incredibly tunnel vision view of the Second World War, which is strategic level, tactical level. They ne- they rarely rarely come into it, and I just I, and I think you know one of the reasons why I think what you're doing is so important is that is opening people's minds to this kind of you know war is a is a bigger operation than just sort of landing on a beach and firing from your Sherman. Well, th- which which leads me on to another thing that that that, that really struck me from both volumes is Parliament. Um, we don't talk about Parliament in the Second World War very much at all. We don't we talk about there's a national government. Tories working hand in glove with 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 Attlee, Morrison and 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 so on, but the but actually there is there's all sorts going on. There, you know, I was telling a friend when I when I read just finished reading the second volume, a, a political journalist I know, and I was telling him about it. And he said, "I said, oh, were they at, they were at it, weren't they? They were at it. It was business as usual in Parliament, even though you've got a war effort, national government, supposedly everyone." Seeing for the, the, the intriguing, the politicking, it all carries on, doesn't it? it, it well, it does, but in a new—I mean, you got to have in two, a new context. Yeah, but you, but, but it, they're still at it. They're politicians, so they're so they are. You know, you, you you and you've got Churchill containing Crips because Crips obviously comes through as kind of number three, possibly number three or four as a hmm. possible future prime minister contender. So Churchill, knowing Stafford Crips well. Make sure he's got jobs that he will hurl himself into and occupy himself with and be distracted by. So he sends it to Moscow, does all these sort of things because he's got to. Con- there's, there's po- politics is still going on and people need to be contained and people need to be and so, so on. So you've got two different things going on. I mean, so so Parliament remains uh, important for the first uh, uh, year or so of the war. Right? So uh, that's where you'll see the key bit of um, political party political jujitsu of the uh, conflict, which is Labour using the fact that trade unions have got to be involved in mobilising the country for total war to get Neville Chamberlain out. And that the fact that that will happen, providing they don't totally screw up the timing, is quite apparent from September 1939. The risk is, if the crisis in the West comes too early and Labour leaves that moment too late, uh, they, or, they, or they go too early, they end up looking unpatriotic. Yeah. So uh, there's a real piece of political skill there uh, uh, and a set of traps that Chamberlain falls into and he's not the, politi- the skilled political operator that somebody like David Lloyd George would have managed to jump yeah, out so of that he'd have, he'd, have pulled, he'd have pulled the rabbit yeah. from the hat at the right moment. Yeah. Once you've got that national government formed, then Parliament becomes less important. And one of the things I think is interesting, of course, MPs keep intriguing, but actually by 1942, um, almost everybody who's really worth their salt is either... They're either away from Westminster doing something for the war effort, 
probably they're they're in the forces if they're a conservative or they're doing something to organize factories um yeah. if they're a, if they're with their labor uh or or they've been brought into government hmm? uh so you've got this kind of residuum of MPs lots of whom are conservatives who were left over from uh big majority governments yep. in the 1930s and big majority governments uh, end up having all sorts of people elected who nobody thought would be elected uh, who might not be terribly good at being MPs uh, that's that's the sort of person who's left in Westminster yeah. by 1942 and of course they keep intriguing but very very ineffectively yeah and that's why so Churchill's position is really safe so, so there's a lot, a lot of discussion in the historiography about what's what's happening in Parliament in 1942, for example. Churchill's pretty safe from Parliament because there isn't somebody else who's going to rise up, you know, who's not already in the government. Yeah. Actually, then what you're seeing from 42 through to 45 is the different big figures in the government manoeuvring against each other. Yeah. And lots of them are looking to what's going to happen afterwards. Yes, because 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 that really becomes the, the that's the that's the debate, um, uh, at the high level in politics, isn't it? And and. Churchill really wanting to stall for quite a long time about about what to do about rebuilding the, the country, what what actually to cede to Labour, what actually you do next, and and beverage the beverage report of course comes in and he eventually gives in to commissioning that they the, the, he has to deal with the knock on effect of that and its publication and it being a bestseller all that sort of thing, and, and, and that's where the that's where the political political action is isn't it? Well, that's right, and also thinking about what will the post-war look like? So I think, you know, again, they're looking back to the model of the First World War. So there's quite a strong presumption right the way through that if you have a post-war election, that the the victors of that will be some kind of coalition under a Churchill stamp. Yeah. Uh, just as, you know, the David Lloyd George uh, coupon had won the 1918 election. Yeah. So it's it's reasonable to, to think... Well, you know, the Conservatives have effectively won every government, every election since 1931. Uh, some kind of variety of Conservative coalition is going to be what wins in the future. Conservative political machine is incredibly effective in the 1930s, and Labour's isn't. Uh, so that that what actually happens in 1945 is very unexpected. But because they're working on that presumption that the post-war might see another coalition, that's then the space within which people like Eden, like Morrison, yeah. uh, like Bevin are all operating to think about how they can get what they want. And there might be quite a good reason. If you don't think that you're going to be in a majority government post-war, then get embedded every bit of social change that you can before the conflict finishes. Commit that future government yeah. uh, to doing something. Yeah. Try and make sure that you will have a place in that post-war transitional period uh, where you'll be able to get some more of what you want into place. Yeah. So it could be... And also, I mean, the other thing is nobody wants to give up power. No. All, all those ministers, they're... they're by the time you get to 44, 45, they're very experienced at using power. They, they know how the levers work. The, the ministerial dross, a lot of that's been got rid of. Yep. So uh, well, there's Labour, a pleasure to being good at your job. Though. And Labour have also made a case for planned economy stuff as well, haven't they? They've been able, they've, they've been able to demonstrate its effectiveness through the war, haven't they? So that's... So, which 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 then leads you to what happens in the Attlee government. They, yeah. But they can make a case. They can say, look, it works. What we've been doing works. Uh, uh, yes, although they've no, not been able to do before, they've simply not been able to do before. Labour, Labour, Labour 
really haven't had a proper go at government full stop until until the war, have they? No, I've said so. I and mean, again, there's two different things there. One is is demonstrating that they can be responsibly patriotic. Yeah. That Labour and government won't just turn the whole the whole ship over and try and launch a revolution. Uh, and the other is showing that bits of a Labour policy agenda might work. Yeah. So those are things like um, the government taking more control of industries in crisis. Yeah. Uh, saying that you, I mean, planning's a big mantra for that post-war government, but it's very hard. What they discover is pla- really planning the whole economy is really hard. In, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. even during in the and middle also of the they've conflict, got a, the whole economy. You know, post-war, you've also you've got to kind of bring down the, the the armed forces, reduce the armed forces dramatically. You know, you've you've your mind has been to- you know one's mind's been totally on building you know 132 and a half thousand aircraft. Well, what do you do now? And, you know, what happens to all those factories and what happens to all those factories that are making tanks and everything else? And what happens to the kind of, you know, now that you've you've had this huge agricultural revolution during the course of the Second World War, what do you do now? Does that does that all continue or what? You know, there's, there's actually a huge number of decisions to make about the future, you know, which which is it's just so endlessly fascinating, isn't it? One of the astonishing things, I think, actually, is how quickly the Atlee government is able to rebuild the export economy. That, that, that During the war, one of the big fears is, will Britain ever be able to export enough to make up for all these lost investments? Mm. And actually, within the first term of it, they do that uh, yeah. because they can still call on a lot of that kind of wartime legacy of people being willing to work hard, to work yeah. for a big national cause. Uh, yeah. So those calls to produce more work... But at the same time... It starts time, to wear off, though, doesn't exactly, it? Exactly, because what they can't deliver on is uh, the aspiration of the 1930s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's that idea that you, you're working so hard, well, you want things to be a little bit better. You want the hope of actually being able to have a house of your own. All those things... But that's what the, the Beverage Report is doing, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's exactly what the Beverage Report is doing. And I mean, I, I think what's really interesting is when you, when you look at... at um, letters and 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 so on from troops in the summer of 1943 for example a lot of them are talking about the beverage report and they're talking about after the war and and what's going to happen and 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 i think all those things are are, are really fascinating because people are they they don't want to kind of have that kind of same experience that, that happened in 1918 to sort of 1921 where people were coming back and actually the kind of land fit for heroes didn't didn't kind of deliver um you know, so there is this sense, isn't there, that, that that the Britain you come back to needs to be not only different, but it needs to be better. It needs to be more. Uh, it needs to be a fairer society, and all those sort of things. And and you know, and I think a, a lot of people forget that the 1930s were kind of, you know, it was that dark valley, isn't it? Uh, uh, the- well, there are two things. In the 1930s, has the dark valley. Uh, if you're uh, uh, if you're if you're a member of the working classes, so 75 percent of the population, and you live outside the boom areas of the Midlands and the southeast, uh, then the 1930s see prolonged unemployment and a lot of suffering, um, and a, a big, big uh, gap in terms of um, uh, inequality. Yep. Uh, if you live on the outskirts of London and you're working in light industry, uh, the 1930s is a good time. Pretty good, yeah. yeah. And I, th- I think it's that sense of that being um, that being something which everybody ought to be able to have. Yes, you know that's that's really what that uh, um, that post-war. The, you know, the the debate about the post-war is how how can everybody have that lifestyle? Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. yes, yes, yes. Uh, but there is a, what, there is a, there is a greater expectation of it. Whereas yeah. in the nineteen thirties, if you were working class and you were in one of the kind of more impoverished areas, you know, say you were living in sort of I don't know Bradford or something, uh, and you were living on a diet of bread and dripping, you, you know, you, there was no real hope that you could ever get out of that. But but the Second World War changes that. There is this idea that you know and I know they had kind of officers 
being appointed in the field and stuff in the First World War. But there's there's more of that going on in the Second World War. There is there is it is still a very classless society, but it, but a lot of those class barriers are being broken down by the Second World War. And there is because of the Beveridge Report, because of the, the aspirations of the 1930s and a whole host of factors. There is this expectation post-war, post-1945, that things are going to be better for the masses, not just for the few. But and, that and, also underlines why it's so critical that Labour don't make a mess of their moment in, in yes. at the start of the war. Sure, and and that the Conservatives mess it up. Yeah, because what you know, what what have the Conservatives been good at since uh, nineteen eighteen? You know, after um, uh, uh, after Baldwin kind of house trains the Conservative Party, they get very good at stealing uh, uh, yes. more moderate policies, tacking towards the middle, working out building the council houses. Is. I mean, yep. the Chamberlain government builds builds uh, so many council houses, doesn't it? It's, it's part of its. Uh, uh, stealing the pro- Labour's progressive clothes. I mean, exactly. it's, it's so, interesting. So I think one of the one of the interesting things about the middle part of the Second World War is that the cons- the Conservative failure to adapt. Yeah, and it's quite obvious that there are a set of. Uh, moderate imperialist or Christian conservatives, uh, you know, who've all in some ways willing to buy into that idea of uh, more state action, maybe not as much um, control over the individual or control over private property as the Labour Party would want, but they're definitely willing to see there's a new political reality. And because partly because they're so varied in their outlook, they can never agree exactly on what they want. And partly because they get no leadership from Churchill, they never come together to offer a kind of coherent challenge. And it'll take... I mean, they, they don't get their act together after the war either. It takes to the early 50s, really, for them to... Because uh, uh, I think people... One of, one of the things that um, is quite interesting is Churchill doesn't become the leader of the Conservative Party until late 19, 1940, until mm-hmm. after Chamberlain is, is deposed as Prime Minister but remains leader of the Conservative Party, doesn't he? T- mm-hmm. Until he dies, basically. Yeah. And then Churchill, at, at the time, says, I don't want the job, I don't want to do it. And is told pretty firmly that he that he has to yeah. because, because he... He, he didn't want to bother himself with that. He thought, I've got enough on my plate as it is. And that's kind of how he carries on, isn't it? But also, he's not a... He's, he's not a party man, he's, not just He's not a, not a party man sounds like a good thing these days, right? Yeah, doesn't yeah, yeah, it? yeah. Right. Not a party man sounds like he can't be bothered to get involved in all those partisan fights. You know, he's he's a very partisan person when it comes to thinking about uh, being opposed to socialism. He's viscerally opposed yeah. to socialism. Uh, the truth is, he's not very good at parliamentary politics yeah. or... Uh, democracy. Yeah. He's not somebody who really gets how you operate in this new post-1918 era of mass democracy. Yeah. He's an electoral liability for the Conservative Party, uh, actually, because he, he do, he's not somebody who grasps how you tack to the middle. Uh, he likes a fight. Yeah. When he tries to do those things in 1945... You know, it's that that famous Gestapo yes, uh, speech, yeah. which, uh, well, whether or not it has an effect on how people are going to vote, is a very striking moment in the election. It comes because he's trying to make an appeal to the middle, mm. but it's characteristic of him that when he tries to do it, he gets it wrong. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's another side to that, uh, that war leader. Is he, he just doesn't want to engage with it. Because the company he kept, he'd choose, wouldn't he? Rather than being a party politician where you'd think, well, these are the MPs I'm going to have to work with, so I'll need to build alliances and... In, in, in the in the traditional party, no, he just employs who he wants. He just gets in. He, who he employs wants. who he wants. He gets his friends around him. He has his he has his crew of people whose company he likes. Well, and 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 people who you know probably shouldn't have anything to do with public life at all, like Max Feverbrook. You know, uh, uh, you know. So he he he's sort of rogue gallery people rather than being a classical yeah. parliamentary leader. And I mean, he's a very effective political operator in terms of the interplay of ministerial ambition at the top. Yeah. So the way in which he constrains Anthony Eden's ambitions yeah. 
So you, you talked about Stafford Cripps earlier, but actually the big threat to Churchill right the way through is Eden. Yeah. Right? Because Eden is the one who can appeal to the middle, who's glamorous. Uh, Good looking and dashing. Likes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So great who, war record. What, what a... What a great uh, leader for a modern Britain heading forward rather than this kind of um, archaic figure of Churchill. But actually what Churchill does right from the start is find all sorts of ways either to uh, stroke Eden's ambition and to say, well, you don't... Of course you'll be my successor. You yeah. don't need to do anything. I'm yeah. feeling so ill. Uh, of course, I've said to the king, that if anything happens to me on one of these long transatlantic uh, flights, you're the person that must take over, Anthony. You know, uh, All of which is designed to make sure that Eden never makes that jump. And again, they're looking back to the they're first... They're looking back because it's possible, because it yep. happens. Because Asquith, after all, yep. yeah, suffered that exact fate from a, from a younger, snazzier opponent. Yep. Yeah. Um, Barry, uh, Barry, just down the road from me, actually. Literally two miles from here. Which uh, one? Anthony Who? Eden. All right. <laughs> While we were off air, we talked about David Edgerton. Yes. Who of whom I have, you know, my admiration is is you know. Knows Britain's no limits. War Machine. He's he's a lovely he's just, fellow. He's a brilliant he's, he's a brilliant historian. And and Britain's yeah. War Machine, I think, was is has been a very very important book because it has turned on its head a lot of the the kind of sort of overall kind of mythology about the Second World War, which has sort of really taken root for the kind of last sort of 50, 50 years since the nineteen sixties, really. And uh, and I think it's absolutely fascinating. And, and I remember talking to him and, and having lunch with him and and, and him being very dismissive of that old school kind of narrative history of the Second World War and, and calling them the declinists. And, and I said, well, what do you mean by this, David? And he said, well, you know, I sort of got it in for Britain saying we're all Britain's rubbish and just hanging off the shirt sleeves of the Amer- shirt tails of the Americans and all the rest of it. Um, and at the time, it, it just chimed so strongly with a lot of research I'd, I'd been doing where I was looking into stuff and I was thinking, well, you know, actually... Doesn't seem that bad, um, you know. Actually, we seem quite good. Um, gosh, I hadn't appreciated, you know, how what a grasp we had of kind of global um, uh, merchant shipping and all that kind of stuff. And, and it gets you thinking. And, and you, my conclusion on this, my, my kind of sort of view on this is, is that if you if you accept that there's three levels of war, you know, strategic, tactical, operational, the narrative histories that we've been reading for the since the 1960s have basically focused almost entirely on the strategic and the tactical and not the operational. When you reinsert the operational level, a kind of rather different picture emerges. But I'm kind of interested, on Dan, on, on your take on all this. Uh, so I, uh, I share your admiration for David as a historian. I think... Uh what I particularly envy about him as a historian is his ability to write concisely and with a very strong argument. He's a natural uh, polemicist in a way, uh, and that means that he can get his point across very clearly. Um, and uh, his later book about the British nation, the making mm. of the British nation, yeah. I think also uh, puts those arguments in Britain's war machine in a bigger uh, a bigger context. And I think he manages to... Uh, to to place the Second World War in Britain's 20th century history in a really important way. Um, and he's very good on uh, on what decline means and doesn't mean. That Britain has astounding, or the British Empire, Britain and its empire have an astounding um, economic and military power during the conflict. And of course, in, in 1944, when superpower is coined for the first time, it's used about three countries. It's America, it's the USSR, and it's, it's Britain and its empire. It's seen as a superpower, quite rightly so. Uh, and yet, 
Britain's ability to operate independently, uh, its power to determine the world, has declined significantly as a result of the war. And that's the, yeah. you know, the... Uh, you know, what does Churchill, the great imperialist, see during his premiership, but this colossal decline of imperial power after mm. 1942? Mm. Um, so I think David's also very good on, the, well, well, what happens afterwards? Yes. That actually uh, there is this post-1945 nationalist moment when Britain takes on a great national project. So it moves from being its focus being imperial to one being national about... Uh, uh, rebuilding the economy, reorienting the economy, um, uh, exist, being able to exist under its own resources, make its own way in the world, uh, recasting itself as more of a welfare state as well. Uh, and what he says is, it doesn't work. Britain can't operate by itself anymore. Actually, it, it, it takes it a long time to realise this. But in fact, uh, once you have a, a modern globalised world, you lose power within that. Well, you can't you can't operate by yourself, yeah. and possibly there are lessons about that for the present and the future. But you know, but I think one of the things yeah. that's I mean, really interesting is is that that you know this 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 declinist take that this declinist narrative that David terms it. it I mean, what, what do we mean by that? What I, what I mean by that is this kind of view that broadly speaking, Britain's a bit rubbish. Um, the Americans aren't very good, but they're rich. Um, it's 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 the Russians that have done all the hard yards. The Germans are militarily completely brilliant at everything they do, but they're kind of you know the the, the man at top is kind of ideologically very dodgy and sort of ruins it for everyone. Um, and and it just doesn't take in account this kind of operational level. And I think a lot of the reason why people think about this is for a number of reasons, but I think one of it is because the time this change happens is, is you know, this is Corelli Barnett, it's AJB Taylor, it's, it's who, who get this whole kind of, this whole kind of sort of mode of, of thinking about Britain's war effort in this, you know, kicking the triumphalist kind of view into touch and kind of looking at a much more declinist view. And that comes at a time where Britain is... You know, the empire is all but over. Um, decline of Britain as a great power. Then you get into the 1970s. You end up with kind of three-day weeks and, you know, all the rest of it. And you've got the Cold War. And and, and the preeminent kind of powers are the Soviet Union and, and the USA. And it's just little Britain again. And, and so it's very hard to think of Britain as the Britain of the late 1930s and, and you know, during the war years of, of this superpower. Uh, and... And I think that's where a lot of it comes. And I think a lot of this kind of sort of putting the Germans on a pedestal is because after the war, we then sat there. They're the only people who've fought the Soviet Union. And so we're eager to hear what their views are. And when they do the kind of foreign military studies program for the Americans, but also do their interviews for the, for the British as well, they're tending to put quite a good slant on their own performance. You know, we were just military, you know, we were soldiers first. We were just trying to kind of, you know, be brilliant soldiers doing our bit for the fatherland and for the for, for Germany. You know, we never liked Hitler, blah, blah, blah. Uh, um, uh, and they're putting themselves in a pretty good light, frankly. In, I, well, uh, I mean, and all of uh, which is, is entirely understandable. But it gives you this incredibly kind of warped view, which is that, you know, they've got all this tactical chutzpah and, you know, we're all slow and stodgy and all the rest of it. Uh, and you're, But those assumptions are based on just looking at it at a very one-dimensional level. I think I think that's right, and it's it's interesting how much of that history is actually telling you more about the period in which it was written Correct. than the war exactly. itself. I mean, I do remember saying this to Anthony Beaver once, and Anthony took massive exception because I said, you know, to a certain extent, every history, every every historian, and every history they write is a product of the age in which they're writing it, rather than the age of that they are writing about. 
And, and you know, Anthony took great exception to this, but I, I, I stand by that. It's blindingly obvious, isn't it? Yeah, well, no, no, I'm, I, <laughs> and, and, and I'm as guilty as that as anybody else. Well, yes, of course, this is, the, this is it, the thing. I mean, one of the points, uh, uh, one of the things I think that's that's interesting, because the, 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 David's, Edgerton's last book, the, the, that of the, the rise 20, and fall of the British yeah, nation. Yeah. yeah, the rise and fall of the British nation, the twentieth century political history. See, is in his introduction, he says, "Okay, let's try. Let, I'm trying to write. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. I'm trying to write a book where, when we write about Germany, we're allowed to talk about Prussian militarism, right? Because we're not Prussian and we're not German, so we we have that distance. We're allowed to do it. He says, maybe it's time to write a book about Brit- British." Uh, the, the, the British politics and uh, the British economy and the British imperial system like that. And because after all, one of the reasons that the, we are, that the British were so able to turn things on a, apparently on a sixpence in, in, in the first two years of the Second World War, is because this is what we, this country has been doing for centuries. You know, you look at the Napoleonic War, if you cast, if you cast the Second World War in that light, it's gearing the economy to a war effort, blockade, coalition warfare on the continent, um, uh, fighting your enemy at, 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 at the end of his supply chains. So, for mm. instance, in Portugal, that this is this is it's business as usual. The Second World War on on one level. I mean, I'm overstating my case to make my point, but but that that, that I think is a, another way of looking at the Second World War, isn't it? We've done this before. Uh... I'm not sure I'd go back <laughs> as far as the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, I, th- I, it's come up again and again, hasn't it? The legacy of the First World War. I, the, I'm not one of those people who thinks the First World War causes the Second World War, but um, it does seem to me that there's a there are a set of mode of thoughts, modes of thought that uh, are preserved from that earlier conflict. I mean, they can only about, be, it's only twenty years yeah, difference. But they're about total war yeah. and the need to mobilise whole societies and. And the tragedy is that that then becomes the logic that drives on the Second World War. Right? Yeah. Uh, that actually that's the reason that Germany and Italy and Japan want to go to war because they have to win a quick war to get the resources because a bigger future war is coming. And if you don't get the resources, yeah. then everybody knows from last time around that you're doomed. Um, and the British, you're right, the British are good at that sort of war. It's a state which has developed um, uh, to be good at that sort of war in all sorts of ways. Um it's it's also good at that sort of war because it can impose uh, impose outcomes on other people, mm. right? not just its opponents, but also all the people in its empire. Yeah. Right. So uh, you know when we think about what the British experience of the Second World War is like, we've got to think about all those countries where uh, uh, which have exploited in different ways yeah. uh, in order that Britain can get away with having actually quite an easy go. Uh, easy, relatively speaking. Of, relatively speaking, um, compared to other countries in Europe. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Dan. I mean, overall. I mean, you, you, you're saying you, you don't you don't want to sort of tell people what to think. You want to let them draw their own conclusions from the evidence which you put before them. As you've gone through this this epic two volume twenty year project, I mean, how do you view? Britain's war effort. I mean, do you, do you overall? I mean, I know that's a very difficult question, but but, but do, do, are you are you admiring, or I mean, do you think actually Britain did bloody well as a, you know, if I was to summarise in one sentence, it did really well, or would you think? Do you think overall they kind of sort of cut things up a bit? 
there's a great history of uh, Scotland by Christopher Harvey called No Gods and Precious Few Heroes, right. which actually comes from a line written by, um, I've forgotten his name now, a Scottish uh, war poet uh, uh, in the Western Desert. And I always think, I mean, if I could write, if I could put a, a terminology on all the history I'd like to write, No Gods and Precious Few Heroes, I think is a good, a good aspiration to have. Right. So uh, I don't know if I'm admiring, I think I am in awe of Yes. The scale of uh, Britain and and the Empire's war effort in the Second World War, and I'm definitely in all of the the long term planning that that conflict involved, <laughs> uh, and I think it leads to very. I'm not going to say effective military outcomes. It leads to very big military effects. So something like the the strategic bombing campaign uh, is is achieving minimal effects for a long time for all the investment that's put into it. One of the things that I think is very interesting about that, all that effort and that wasted effort, though, is that bits of it will start to come right in 1944, and they'll still mean that the war ends quicker than it would otherwise have done in yes. Europe. Uh, but also, that's about some, that whole process of, I mean, you know, mm. putting so much emphasis on machinery and aircraft and bombers and all the rest of it, because because obviously for the for the number of men you lose in bomber command compared to what you might lose by sort of slogging it in with huge armies. I mean, you've only got to look what happens to the nations that have really big armies. You know, it, it, it ends really, really badly, whether you be Japan, whether you be Soviet Union, whether you be Germany. And you you put so many boots on the ground, but having huge numbers of boots on the ground is 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 it by nineteen forty standards a very inefficient way of fighting a war because you end up with more casualties, and and that is one of the kind of reasons for becoming so um, mechanized, putting so much sort of emphasis on steel, not not flesh. I mean that is part of the British war strategy. It's one that's completely adopted by the Americans as well, and. and You've got to say by the end of the war that that is, you know, from the point of view of lives saved, British lives saved, that has to be the right approach. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> no, well, I, well, what I was thinking. So, so one of the one of the stories that I told at the, the start of the first volume, and I come back to it at the end of the second one, is about the stories that my family had about the, the Second World War. Uh, and if I look at my grandparents' experience of the conflict, they're bound up with technology. Right? My um, my mum's dad was uh, worked for London Transport. He was a uh, bus mechanic, where he ends up being a dispatch rider and then working fixing um, uh, Daimler armoured cars in the Western Desert. Uh, and my, um, my dad's dad met my grandmother because he was teaching her how to drive they were both sergeants uh, in the army home in the ATS um, so you know it's again there's a, a relationship that only came into being because of technology uh, <laughs> so you know I'm, I'm conscious that I'm very lucky in my family experience that I got to meet uh, those grandparent combatants in the second world war because they didn't have to do that much combat yep. right? you know my dad's dad fought through uh, a difficult bit of northwest Europe um, uh, in '44 and '45, and never forgave the army for not being back in time for the birth of his son. Um, yes. uh, but compared to, you know, if I was German or I was yeah. Russian, well, well, one in three people yeah, very, between. It's just know, a very different those experience. Entire German yeah. generations would. Yeah. This sort of goes back to my point: is is that when you're, and, and this again goes back to that operational level of how you actually fight wars, how, how you kind of organise yourself and your resources and your assets to the to, to, to the most pragmatic, practical way of of achieving your ends, and 
when we think about the Second World War, we think about the, the, the kinetic bit, the actual tactical bit, the fighting, the cold face of war. You know, we're thinking of people in Sherman tanks and Bren carriers um, and, and firing their machine guns and rifles and submachine guns and all the rest of it and hurling grenades. And yet, you know, by 1944, only 14% of the army is infantry. 8% are in tanks. 43% are service corps. Still yeah. pretty bad if you're in the infantry, though. We look at the. It's really I mean, bad. It's terrible. It's, 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 very no, short it's terrible. And your chances of coming through unscathed, you know, from six months of combat, if you're in the infantry, yeah. are, are statistically zero. I mean, you yeah. will get wounded or worse in that period. But the point is, is, is that there's a whole, there's another kind of eighty-six percent which aren't doing that, and and that's mm. that's fantastic. Well, it's fortunate, certainly. Yes, yeah. Uh, what they get, what do, what do, what do Britons get to spend their war doing? Making stuff and fixing stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mostly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, I, I you know, uh, the disparity that then results between those at the sharp end who are having the worst experience and everybody else is another thing that I think you know, in a way, that's bound up with how we remember the war. That we can't remember that difference. Yes. Because it's it's too divisive, you know, uh, and, yeah. and the way that memory works is often that we don't want to talk about those things. Yeah. I think that's now, very true. Very well, true. Well, I think we're, we're we're coming to the end of our time together. Yeah. Um, well, Danny, everyone should everyone should read your books. I've got yeah, to say, every, absolutely, everyone should read your books. Volume um, one is this, into battle, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And volume, volume two, two to come out is a new world, and they're they're totally it's a new brilliant. World, and it's out on the twenty sixth of March. Twenty sixth of March. But so you can but you can order now. You can order it now. You can. Um, is are you done with the Second World War now? I mean, you'd you'd be well within your rights to sort of park it and move on to I don't know the Korean War. I mean, what? Uh, what, what it would be really nice for a long while. I thought I'd like to go and write about something uh, nice and joyful and <laughs> fluffy uh, and not involving uh, mass death. Uh, but no, I'm probably going to sit with the Second World War. Right. Um, the next thing I'd like to look at is um, is the V weapon um, campaign in more depth and particularly the way that those weapons um create emotions yeah so they're they're created as uh terror weapons yes but actually the anger one of the things that's really striking when you look at uh diary accounts of britain and uh, british troops and canadian troops um in europe in in the summer of 44 is how furious these weapons made them so there's something even in the context of this war in which all these horrible things are being done there's something about automated weapons targeting the home front that makes British soldiers really cross and Canadian soldiers because they all had British girlfriends by that yeah. point amazing well, I look forward to reading yeah, that yeah, yeah. fantastic uh, and Dan well, also we're going to see you at the Chalk Valley History Festival yeah looking forward where to you that. are going to be talking about a new world um, but it'll be good to come and have another chat to you then while we're all there as well yeah I look forward to that thank you so much for joining us thank it's been you an absolute pleasure cheerio bye bye cheerio <laughs> <laughs>